This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. All right, before we dig into our text this morning, I want to take you on a journey. Let's travel 6,959 miles due east. I meant to think about east. I think that's east, right? Due east to the ancient walled city of Jerusalem. Let's travel back in time also 2,724 years. Okay? Ancient city of Jerusalem, 701 B.C. You have landed in a place that is difficult, harsh, and often cruel. And one of the things that makes it particularly difficult, harsh, and cruel is the dominant empire of the day, Assyria, the largest and most powerful empire in all of the world. It is important to remember that in those days, empires did not grow by willful annexation. Countries did not say, hey, you know, those Assyrians seem to have a lot of good things going for them. They seem to offer loads of lovely civil services. Why don't we reach out and see if we can join them? No. In those days, you became the largest and most powerful empire on the world by force, by conquest, by violence and destruction. So as you wander the dusty streets of Jerusalem, all you hear people talking about is Assyria. Because the largest and most powerful empire in the world is on the move. They have conquered lands all around you. They have conquered 50 cities. Already they've conquered 50 cities just in your area. And their sights are now set on Jerusalem. Can you even imagine the level of panic that you and your neighbors are experiencing? Everything that you know, all that you care about, your life and the life of your family are on the verge of being wiped out. Every day, you hear a new report. The Assyrians are coming, and they're closer and closer and closer. And then the day arrives. You and your neighbors climb up on the wall of your little town of about 10,000 people, and you look out across a vast army of 185,000 Assyrians surrounding you. Your heart just melts. Well, thankfully, here in Boyer Elementary in the year 2023 A.D., there are no armies massed outside seeking to work us woe, to kill or to capture us. Those are ancient foes, ancient threats. The threats that we face are much more modern, aren't they? But they are just as real. In a room this size, there are certainly people facing Assyrian-like threats, even this morning. I know the details of some of them. We pray for many of them as a church. Maybe you or someone that you know is in the midst of a health crisis. Maybe you've lost your job and the bills are piling up. Maybe your marriage has grown cold or is dying. Or your children are drifting away from you or from the Lord. Who knows, some of you might actually jump at the chance to switch places with those ancient Jews and face that Assyrian army. So with that background and with an eye toward the threats and the problems that each of us will face in this life, I want you to consider this question in your mind as we look at our text this morning. Where do I place my trust when times get difficult? Where do I place my trust when times get difficult? 
To help us answer that question, we will be looking at Psalm 46 this morning. Please turn there now, Psalm 46. And as you look at this psalm, you may see the word Selah appear three times, probably on the right edge of your text. And while we're not exactly certain what the word Selah means, it is thought by many to be a musical term, either calling for a brief rest, perhaps to give the singers time to catch their breath, or to give listeners time to pause and reflect. We're going to consider it as a time of pause, pausing and reflecting. And it also serves as a very natural break for my text this morning. In this psalm, this song, we will break it into three different points. Point number one, God is our refuge today. Point number two, God is our refuge tomorrow. And our third point, God is our refuge forever. So please stand, if able, while I read the first three verses of Psalm 46. To the choir master of the songs of Korah, According to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Please be seated. So, why in the world did I drag you through that terrible and dreadful history lesson on the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem in 701 B.C.? Well, because, although we're not absolutely certain, many scholars believe that Psalm 46 was written in response to that attack that was recorded in 2 Kings. Now, when I left off on our story in the city of Jerusalem, they were under siege from an Assyrian army of at least 185,000 men the people would have been absolutely paralyzed with fear. If you were there, would any other worry have room to enter into your mind? Would there be any space for other cares or concerns? I don't think so. The only topic of conversation and the only thought on anyone's mind would be, what will the Assyrians do to us and will we survive? Now these are not the normal fears and worries of life. These are the earth give way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea kind of terrors. For them, the question I asked earlier, where do I place my trust when times get difficult? That question would not have been an academic exercise. So where did the people in Jerusalem in 701 BC place their trust? Where did their king, King Hezekiah, place his trust? Well, in 2 Kings 19, we read that the king responded to this threat by publicly humbling himself before God and going to the temple to pray to God and ask for deliverance. Listen to part of his prayer recorded in 2 Kings 19. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Well, so what happened? Well, in one of the most amazing and yet succinct verses in all of Scripture, we read that God miraculously answered the prayer of King Hezekiah this way. That night, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. 
Praise God. He saved them from the destruction of the Assyrians. If that event was truly the genesis for Psalm 46, you can just imagine the joy and the celebration and the relief as the people of Jerusalem saying, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Isn't that verse amazing? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want to make just five quick points about this verse. The first point, God is our. God is not a refuge and strength. He is our refuge and strength. If you were a child of God, you can read this passage as God is my refuge and strength, my very present help in trouble. When you run to him in times of trouble, when the earth give way, gives way and the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, you don't have to bang at the fortress doors hoping that he will let you in, pleading for his salvation. He is your fortress. Your heavenly Father will see you coming and open the door for you as you draw near. Second point, God is our refuge. At least for me, my, my reaction in times of trouble is often, how can I fix this thing? What can I do to make it better? That is, I tend to try to construct my own refuge. Maybe you do this too. Maybe you view your refuge as your successful career, your 401k, Maybe it's the strong support system that are your friends and your family. And man, while all of these things are good, they are not good refuges. There will be times in life when these things turn out to have been built on sand. When the rains come and the waters rise, they will just wash away. There is only one refuge built on the rock, only one, or only one refuge that will stand solid as the earth gives way and the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, and that is God. My third point, God is our strength. You know, where the word refuge or fortress feels defensive, the word strength has an offensive feel to it, doesn't it? As your world falls apart, you stumble toward him seeking safety. But you collapse out of breath and shake with fear. You see that God is rising up. God is taking action on your behalf. You are weak and exhausted. You have nothing to contribute. But God is all-powerful. God is your strength. King Hezekiah put all of his hope in the strength of God. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us, he prayed. This was not the reaction of a powerful king with a powerful army who had everything under control. This is the reaction of a wise king who knew that he was weak as God was strong. Fourth point, God is our help in trouble. More than just strength, God is our strength focused and directed toward our benefit. It's one thing for someone to be strong, isn't it? But it's quite another when they have committed that strength to your benefit, your help. Christian, when you are in need, the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe, the one who spoke the earth into existence and the mountains into existence and the seas into existence with the very word of his mouth, that God is your help. And point five, God is very present God is not just our help in trouble. He is our very present help in trouble. Let me ask you an important question. When things get really bad in Gotham City and there's nowhere left to turn, what does Commissioner Gordon go to do? Anybody? Batman, that's right. Commissioner Gordon climbs to the rooftops and he turns on the bat light, the signal to Batman to please come and be their help in trouble. But have you ever thought about what happens if the trouble comes during the brightness of the day 
when the bat light could not be seen? How would Batman know to come to the rescue? Needless to say, Batman is not always present. He is certainly not very present. I like the way the NIV translates this better. Ever present. For his children, God is ever present. He is not far off. God is with us. More than that, he is very with us. He is ever with us. What a great verse. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. So given this tumultuous context of the earth giving way and the mountains being thrown into the sea, what do we take as an application point? What can we take from these powerful first three verses of Psalm 46? Well, thankfully, the psalmist gives us the most important application point right there at the start of verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear. If God truly is our refuge and strength and very present help in trouble, we should not fear. For if he cares for us as our earth gives way and the mountains are falling into the sea, won't he care for us in all things? Jesus spoke about our fears too. In Matthew 6, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put into it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? If God cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, Jesus promises that he will take care of us. If God will be our refuge and strength and ever-present trouble, help in trouble, when the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, he will care for our daily concerns and needs too. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, it's interesting to think about what verse 2 does not say. The sons of Korah, inspired to write by the Holy Spirit, did not write, Therefore, we will not fear, since God will not allow our earth to give way and our mountains to be moved into the heart of the sea. The promise of care does not mean the absence of trouble. And trouble does not always get resolved as miraculously and gloriously as it did in 2 Kings 19. In fact, just about 100 years after God miraculously delivered the Jerusalem, Jerusalem from the Assyrian army in 701 B.C., just 100 years later, a new empire and a new king came to overthrow Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon. And this time, they succeeded. So what good did it do for those citizens of Jerusalem to have a God as a refuge and a strength and a very present help if things still went horribly wrong? What good does it do for you to have a God as a refuge and a strength and an ever-present help and then still have things go horribly wrong? The chemotherapy didn't stop the cancer. The marriage wasn't saved. The bank is taking the house. What good is my refuge if it cannot protect me from these disasters in my life? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? Selah. Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ faced the sort of disasters and calamities that the sons of Korah wrote about in Psalm 46. God the Son, eternally in communion with God the Father, was about to have his earth give way and mountains fall into the sea. The best friends that he had poured his life into for three years were all about to abandon him. One of them was about to betray him. He was going to be arrested, humiliated, tortured, and executed. 
But that wasn't even the worst part. No, worse than all these other horrible things, Jesus was about to take the entire weight of our sin onto his shoulders and bear the penalty and punishment of that sin on our behalf. It is an agony and a torment that we cannot imagine. The ultimate disaster, the calamity above all possible calamities, is to receive a real punishment, a just punishment for one's sin against a holy God. No one can stand under that disaster, but the sinless Jesus did. He did it for you, and he did it for me. He loved us that much. And perhaps most mind-boggling of all, Jesus absolutely knew what was coming. He knew that that lovely evening over a Passover meal with his buddies, then some quiet prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, was going to end with the world giving way and his mountains being tossed into the middle of the sea. Listen to this description of the sorrow and the turmoil as he prayed that night in the garden. Perhaps you too have experienced nights like this. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we read, In being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Yeah, he knew what was coming. Yet what did he pray for? He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. How could Jesus submit himself to the coming disaster like that? What enabled him to bear up under the worst agony and suffering that any one person will ever endure? Well, Jesus himself answers that question for us. After the resurrection, he's speaking to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, 26, he says... Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Jesus Christ suffered and died under the burden of our sin in order that he could enter into his glory and so that he could bring us with him. That knowledge was how he bore up under that unimaginable burden. He knew glory was coming. He was looking toward tomorrow, toward a future glory. And this is the same hope of future glory we see in the second section of our text. So why won't we fear? Because like Christ and only because of Christ, we can raise our eyes to a glory in our tomorrow, to a time and a place and an existence where all will be made right. Let's look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What is the psalmist talking about? What is this river and these streams and this city of God? Well, the idea of a a stream of living water was not a new one to the Old Testament river, to the Old Testament reader, rather. There are several places in the Old Testament that talk about this future river in these streams. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, all reference future streams and rivers of healing. But perhaps the place in our text is most closely mirrored in the New Testament, this river flowing through the city of God, is seen in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, 
yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the glory that Christ was looking toward in the Garden of Gethsemane as his earth gave way and the mountains were moved into the middle of the sea. This is the place where he would enter into with the thief on the cross next to him saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, God relieved the pain and the suffering of the Jews as they were attacked by Assyria in 701 B.C. But God did not relieve the pain and the suffering of the Jews as their city and nation fell to Nebuchadnezzar 100 years later. He did not stop the Babylonians from tearing down the city walls, desecrating and destroying the temple of God, and taking their best and strongest away into captivity. And God the Father did not take the cup of suffering from God the Son, Jesus Christ. God has not promised to remove the pain from our lives. But he has promised this. There will come a tomorrow, a very real day and a very specific time, where even the most terrible and horrible disasters that have befallen us in this life will melt away. When we will be with the Lord Almighty in the eternal city of God. But boy, it's hard for us to see tomorrow sometimes. In the midst of the circumstances and the concerns and the trials and tribulations that we face, Paul, who is no stranger to terrible hardships himself, does his best to get us to lift our gaze, to gain a true and right perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he writes, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. Let this be the application point of our second application of our second point in this message. Christian, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Think about the glory that awaits. Meditate on the eternity that stretches before us. Child of God, a day of glory is coming for us. And on that tomorrow, when we see the weight of eternal glory that is ours, the troubles of earth will be just light and momentary, strangely dim in comparison. Until then, we will cling strongly to this hope. For on that tomorrow and eternally after, although nations will have been in uproar and kingdoms will have fallen, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And we catch our breath and reflect on this great truth. Selah. In the third and final section of Psalm 46, we see that God will be our refuge, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. As you read the words of this last section of Psalm 46, you almost get the feeling that you are visiting a sacred ground where sometime before, perhaps not too far in the past, a great battle was waged. Think of visiting Gettysburg a couple of days after the cannons would have fallen silent. Can you imagine what that scene would have been like? The destruction, the devastation the desolation, the death. Let's look at verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease 
to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is the picture of judgment. The war of all wars, the end of all wars, the final destruction of evil and rebellion against God. And as we survey all that God will do in that final judgment, we find the only quote from God in this text. There in voice in verse 10, rather, we see the Lord God Almighty speak. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You know, on that terrible final day, I think this command to be still and know that I am God will probably be a pretty easy one for us to obey. No one in the history of mankind will have seen anything like the works of God in those terrible days of final judgment. But that silence will soon give way to jubilation and exaltation. The Lord God Almighty will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted across the earth. And this exaltation will not be just for a moment or for a season. This praise and worship of the Lord God Almighty will last for an eternity. As one commentator described it, and actually probably could have saved us this entire sermon. I think this is so beautiful and succinct, so I apologize. Psalm 46 sings the day when God will establish his reign, put an end to war, burn its implements, remake the world, wipe away every tear, restore his people to life, glorify their bodies like his own, bring them to the river, and let them eat from the tree of life that stands on its shore. Isn't that amazing? But let's be clear. There are two sides to every battle. Yes, God will ultimately be victorious and his people will stand in silent awe and then worship. For these people of God, all tears will be wiped away and all sorrows will cease. Memories of this earth having given way and of their mountains having been moved into the middle of the sea, these will fade. In fact, even the best days of this life will dim by comparison. For these people of God, the very best days on earth will be just a faint glimpse of heaven, to paraphrase Randy Alcorn. But on the other side stand those not counted in the family of God. Sadly, but surely, these people would have been destroyed. And the fate that awaits them after this day of judgment will be far worse than those terrible days when their earth gave way and their mountains were tossed into the sea. For those outside the family of God, the very, very, very worst days of their lives will be better than any single second in the hell awaiting. So our application for this third point comes in the form of a question. If there are two sides in the upcoming battle, which side are you on? Will you be be standing with the people of God, standing in stunned silence at the magnitude of God's victory, and then living a life of eternal exaltation? Or will you be like the multitudes that lay defeated and destroyed? I can think of no more important question to ask yourself. So what determines which side of the battle you were on? Well, know this, it is not determined by how good or how bad you've been in this life. No one's good enough. It does not depend on whether you were raised in a good family or bad. It does not depend on whether you've made a lot of money or not. It does not depend on whether you go to church or not. It does not even depend on whether you pull for the Aggies or the Longhorns. The only thing that determines which side of this battle you will be on is what you have done with the person of Jesus Christ. Have you repented of your sin and asked that your sin be covered by his sacrifice on the cross? Or will the burden of your sin fall squarely 
on your weak and feeble shoulders. For those of you that have turned to Christ to be your Savior and Redeemer, our only hope in times of trouble, I pray that this sermon has been a source of encouragement for you. We are not promised an easy life. Quite the contrary. For each of us, at some point, the earth will melt away, the mountains will be moved into the heart of the sea, but the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Your best days in this life will be just a dim dim glimpse into what awaits you in eternity. And for those of you that have yet to turn to Christ, I plead with you to do so today. Just as we do not know the number of our days, we do not know the day or time of this great final battle. But we do know the outcome. Come to Jesus today. Let his sacrificial death cover your sins too. After the service, I will be right up here. I would love to talk to you about how you can make that happen. On October 31st, 1517, that's another history lesson, sorry. A young German priest and a university professor named Martin Luther posted a list of 95 propositions for academic debate onto the door of Wittenberg Church. Now, Martin Luther had no thoughts or intentions of sparking a tectonic movement of reformation within the church, but he did. And in 1520 and 1521, Luther stood before two forces at least as powerful as that Assyrian army had been, the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. In his meeting with the Emperor Charles V, Luther was told to recant his heresies. And after a night of prayer, Luther stood before the emperor and said the next morning, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. May God help me. Amen. Well, Luther was right to ask God for help. He was condemned by the pope as a heretic. He was condemned by the the emperor as an outlaw. And thankfully, since this meeting was held in the territory of a friendly prince, Luther was able to escape imprisonment, although he immediately went into hiding. But others in the coming years would not be so fortunate. One historian notes, The emperor Charles V ordered that all the decrees against the Protestants should be put in force with the utmost rigor in every part of his extensive dominions. This severe order occasioned a most dreadful persecution throughout the greatest part of Europe. For as the emperor's power was very extensive, so the cruelties practiced were almost innumerable. Those who were not put to death suffered imprisonment, had their houses pulled down, their lands laid waste, their property stolen. If any fled from these cruelties, they were pursued through the woods, hunted, and shot like wild beasts. Sadly, in the years and the decades and the centuries to follow, severe cruelties were practiced by both Catholic and Protestant alike. But it was during this turbulent and dangerous time that Martin Luther wrote what has come to become one of the most best-known, sacred, non-Boswellian Christian hymns. It's a hymn we will sing after communion this morning. Some think it was written before he met with the Pope and before the Emperor, as Luther faced the very real prospect of his earth giving way and mountains being tossed into the sea. Something that was written later as Luther began to see his friends and supporters executed at the fiery stake. But whenever it was written, it was pulled from the words of our text this morning. 
from Psalm 46. For Martin Luther, God was truly his fortress and strength. It was God who was his ever-present help in trouble. And it was the finished work of Jesus Christ that was going to secure his position on the right side of that terrible final battle. Today, tomorrow, and forever. So like Luther, when our earth gives way and our mountains are moved into the center of the sea, let us remember this. Jesus Christ will win the battle. Today, tomorrow, and forever. God is our refuge and strength. A very real help in trouble. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are our refuge today, tomorrow, and forever. Lord, may we look to you when our earth gives way and our mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. Father, help us not to fear. Help us to set our sights above. Lead us into the city of God, Lord, where we will exalt your name forever and ever. Father, we're grateful the mercies that you've shown us, the love that you've shown us. Father, may we manifest that love in our lives, the lives lived committed to seeing your kingdom expand and seeing us be conformed more and more to the image of your son every day. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 